Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, this is Movie Oubliette, the earth-encompassing movie review podcast with me, Dan, trying to get into the habit of brushing my dog's teeth down here in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) (laughs) And me, Conrad, learning how to change the belts in vintage cassette decks in Cambridge, UK. In this podcast, (laughs) we debate over often overlooked genre films, sci-fi, horror and fantasy because back attachment alien stingrays are all the rage this summer <laughs> oh, good grief <laughs> hello conrad how are you i'm very well how are you yeah good good yeah so we we, uh, we took the dog to the vet a wee while ago and and they pretty much said your dog has plaque so you oh. need to brush your dog's teeth but it's it's oh. so <laughs> it's just so Hard to get into the habit of brushing his teeth. Like, it's only like, you know, three or four times a week. I don't know whether you brush Amber's teeth. But, um, yeah, and he, I mean, he doesn't, you know, dogs don't enjoy it either. So, no. <laughs> it's hard. I, I've got some, yeah, I do brush Amber's teeth and I got some chicken flavored toothpaste. Oh, wow. Supposedly. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> that that seems to work, yeah. That seems to go down a treat. In fact, she ends up just sort of licking it, and I've got this like yeah. thimble thing, yep. or no, like one too. of those rubbery yeah. things that you use in the post office when you're counting out <laughs> bills. Yeah, with yeah. with teeth on it. Yeah, but she just eats it all. I don't think I'm doing much to her teeth at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think you're really scraping off anything. It's it's more that you're scraping on. The toothpaste, which is like you know, right. uh, reacting with the the plaque acid because it's a it's a base um, pH level. So oh, okay. I think it's that more so than actually you know scrubbing because <laughs> <laughs> okay. those tooth uh, brushes are pretty pretty soft. Yeah, they're just little rubbery sort of stumpy things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the toothpaste we use is, is peanut butter flavored. Um, flavored. Oh, so, that'll work. Yeah, so Baxter does lick it a lot, but he hates it when we do the inside of his mouth with uh, his teeth on the inside. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's always a bit of a challenge. Amber is amazing. Amber will let you do anything to her. Wow. Cut her toenails, brush her teeth, brush her, clean yeah. her eyes. Anything. She just sits there with these big eyes sort of just <laughs> staring at you lovingly while you do it she's yeah will well. let you do anything <laughs> yeah okay 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 so you've been uh refurbishing tape decks or tape players <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh my brother is here this weekend gary is here and his latest thing is refurbishing old hi-fi separates from the 80s and 90s right. that he's picking up sort of secondhand on Facebook Marketplace. And I have uh, Bang & Olufsen. Uh, it's one of those upright CDs with a tape deck in it. And and today he was showing me how to dismantle it and how to replace the, mm-hmm. the elastic bands that are in there that drive the tape cassette. Oh. Because over the years they get all flaccid and yeah. lose their elasticity yeah so right, right. he re- 
He replaced my bands today. That was exciting. Okay. He replaced your flaccid bands. Uh, yeah. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my tape deck is in tip-top condition. I never play any tapes, but, you know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Conrad, uh, anything in the mailbag today? Yeah, not not on tape, thankfully. <laughs> we heard from Wildstar Studios about Powder. I was one of the few people who watched Powder 1995 on the silver screen. Ooh. I mainly went to see it because an article in Wizard, a magazine dedicated to comic books and related topics, described the film as being as close as we were likely to get to X-Men on film anytime soon. Mm. The days before Blade 1998 didn't see anything worth watching from Marvel at the movie theatre, and DC had more misses than hits, so anything seemingly comics-related got my attention. Sadly, yeah. I felt the same way about Powder as you and most of your other listeners. His powers needed to be seriously dialed back and the holier-than-thou attitude didn't yes. seem justified. Little yeah. did I know how few years remained before the days of comic book movies being something that only happened once every couple years were about to come to an end in a big way. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess bef uh, pre sort of yeah, Blade and and X Men and all those kind of movies. Um, you you had Superman and Batman. Um, yeah, seventies and eighties. Yeah, uh, and and like some pretty bad adaptations of of, of comic book movies. I think there's a Captain America movie from the nineties, which I have oh, seen, yeah. and it is horrendous. It's like <laughs> some of the worst acting and action and 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 props i've ever seen it's it's uh oh wow, wow. It's really bad so yeah i can understand the timing of of, of powder being quite um appreciated mm. yeah I, that's the thing that i loved about that email was getting this snapshot of what it was like to be somebody who was desperate for comic book superhero yeah, adaptations because you just can't imagine that now can you now i'm sick of them <laughs> yeah i know and I'm, I'm sick of the high powered ones too i just want mm. them to just like i just want intimate x-men again <laughs> like yeah just like one one superhero at a time with like like a very small power yeah and some relatable vulnerabilities maybe yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it's too yeah. much now it is, yeah. It's all a bit big. We also heard from Chazilla, who said, Loved Jeff Goldblum in that leather jacket. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I wonder if this was shot prior to Jurassic Park, because he wore one in that too. Such a great smile. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, a smile could charm anyone. Indeed, yes. And hot off the press, we also heard from Surge of Cold huh? Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hello, Serge. He says, I really enjoyed Sisters, went in knowing nothing and couldn't look away as each act revealed a bizarre new twist and a whole new trajectory for the plot. <laughs> kind of cliched in hindsight, but it's done with so much velocity and bravado that I didn't mind till the credits rolled. Mm. Plus, it's also like weirdly funny. I laughed so hard when Grace dropped the cake that my partner came in to see what I was watching and I had to be like... It's this depraved murder mystery? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it sure was. He also said this week's episode of Movie Oubliette is worth checking out, if only to hear Conrad impersonating Margot Kidder impersonating a Quebecois. Yes, yes. <laughs> so good, Conrad. Well, I did my best. <laughs> Anyway, it's always lovely to hear from you. Please do keep messaging us. Yes, please. Okay, Conrad, what are we doing today? Well, I guess it's me going to the oubliette again. Let me just hurry on over there. Oh, looks like a boring office or something. Oh, okay. What's that? What's that on the floor? It's weird leathery egg. Oh, it's opened. Oh. Oh, there's a movie in there. Whoa! There's a tail coming out of it. Wow! Okay. Now it's swinging on a light fixture. I'm getting out of here now. Yeah. You don't get punctured. Oh, nobody's looking at my boobs. <laughs> Whew! That was a back. close one. <laughs> always is, always is. So, what do you have today? So I have with me today the Puppet Masters, the 1994 American science fiction horror film adapted by Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio and David S. Goyer from Robert A. Heinlein's 1951 novel of the same name Ah. and directed by Stuart Orme and starring Donald Sutherland, Eric Tal, Julie Warner and Yafet Kotto and Keith David. Right, right. And what happens in this film? Well, when special secret agent father and son team Andrew and Sam team up with exobiologist Mary to investigate an apparent flying saucer landing in an idyllic any town in Ohio, they discover that some of the townspeople are behaving strangely dispassionate after visiting the supposed landing site. But all they find is a homemade UFO guarded by weirdly businesslike teenagers. <laughs> Mary's suspicions are a alerted when she realises that none of the men in town are staring at her boobs. Not even the local TV (laughs) station manager, who becomes suddenly homicidal when asked a few basic questions. The agents discover he's under the control of a parasitic alien that's attached to his back, looks like a manta ray, and can swing from ceiling fans with its (laughs) brain-controlling tentacle. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. A delightful body-snatching invasion ensues where parasites leap merrily onto the backs of one character after another, all in a bid for world domination. Can our heroes figure out the parasite's weakness before the whole world, i.e. the US, falls under the sway (laughs) of their malevolent hive mind? And which character will be temporarily possessed in a surprise twist? Spoilers, it's all of them at one point or another, including the cat. And Mm. will Sam be able to get his tentacle into Mary before the aliens (laughs) do? (laughs) Find out after the break. Yeah. And we'll be joined by a guest. We will, thank goodness. <laughs> Back soon. Our 
returning guest today is one half of Horror Queers, co-host of the YA adaptation podcast Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, and a regular contributor to Bloody Disgusting, where he recently watched all of the Amityville movies so you don't have to. It's the <laughs> phenomenally brave and admirably smart Joe Lipsit. Hey, Hello, hey, sir. Hello. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Um, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, I'm not actually done all the Amityville films. Uh, I'm, I think, halfway through. Are you halfway through? How many are there? I think at last count there were 34 or 35. What? <gasps> Gosh. But every time I think I'm making some headway, they make another one. I had no <laughs> oh, idea no. That there were that many. Mm-hmm. It's like Children of the Corn. It's one of those brands that's gotten completely out of control. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I can't even fathom that. <laughs> so is it a bumpy ride or are there some gems in there? Um, I found that I've been grading on a curve. So it's like <laughs> there's other films and then there's Amityville films. And some of them were actually quite <laughs> enjoyable. Like some of them get really messy and dirty. There's often a weird incestual subtext. Mm. And those movies tend to be better. Like the weirder they go, the better they are. <laughs> but then there's a bunch of them that are just really uninspired, low budget, bad acting, like you're just struggling to find something to keep you entertained. Right. Wow, wow, wow. Do you find as well, because I, I remember watching all the Hellraiser movies, mm-hmm. and a lot of them weren't Hellraiser movies to start off with. Exactly. There were other scripts. So is that the case with these movies as well? I think people have realized that you can make money if they use a established IP. Yeah. So they take a look at it. They're like, I've got an idea. I'll just set it in a house with something and then we'll throw Amityville vibrator <laughs> on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I gave up around about the time that it was a possessed lamp. Oh, mm. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fortunately, the film that you've chosen for us to discuss today features possession of a whole other kind. Mm -hmm. The Puppet Masters, a little sci-fi gem from 1994. So, as always, the first question, Joe, when did you first see this or what's your memory of this movie? So I definitely didn't see this in theaters, but this was around the height when my sister and I were renting movies from Blockbuster or the local video rental store. So Ah. we were kind of regulars. So we were just always looking for fresh content, like anything that had interesting box art, Mm -hmm. something that we maybe hadn't seen before. And while we did watch a lot of horror, we would spend a bunch of time looking at sci-fi films. And this one has some pretty good box art from what I remember. And I think that was enough to get us to rent it. And we (laughs) liked it enough that it was something we would actually rent regularly. So this became a bit of a staple. Ah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. wow. So this was multiple viewings for you. Yes. Yeah. I think we would rent it like at least a couple of times a year. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Your faces are saying it all. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing it once and I don't remember whether it was a video rental. I feel like it was just on TV Mm -hmm. and... I seem to remember sort of vaguely enjoying it, but then never thinking about it again. Sure. And not remembering anything apart from one particular scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Dan, how about you? No, no, never seen it. Uh, I also got very confused uh, when it was mentioned because there's another franchise called Puppet Master. Mm -hmm. Yes. Singular, without (laughs) the the. Which is a huge, it must be similar to the Amazonville horror 
franchise where they just keep making sequel after sequel after mm-hmm. sequel. It's like I think eleven movies, bunch of crossovers. There's like spin-offs and comic book miniseries and all sorts of stuff. So I thought it was that, not that. Completely different movie about killer (laughs) puppets, I think. Yeah, no, I never heard of this movie. I think I've vaguely heard talk about the stingray aspect of it because it's quite interesting, the sort of parasite aliens that attach onto the people. It is. So this is based on Robert A. Heinlein's 1951 novel of the same name. And Heinlein seems to have been forgotten or eclipsed by other sci-fi writers, although Mm -hmm. he really was the grandfather of serious sci-fi, setting apart his novels from the space operas like Flash Gordon that predominated Mm. at the time he was writing. He was first recognised by John W. Campbell in his role as an editor of one of these sci-fi magazines for short stories, and he's the author of the short story that became The Thing. Mm. Heinlein wanted to pursue a military career, but tuberculosis cut that short, so he became a writer, very well regarded, but not very often adapted, although he did sue Roger Corman in 1958 for his film The Brain Eaters, which is very similar to this. So this is the first real attempt to adapt one of his most popular novels. Mm -hmm. It's tempting to say putting it in a contemporary context, but his original novel was set in 2007. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. See it in the future. So do we think that the story works in 1994? I think that's a really good question, because in some ways people feel like this movie is coming after the fact because it does bear a strong resemblance to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has multiple adaptations by the time that this film comes around. So I think this film gets compared unfavorably to those as a bit of a, hmm, it's kind of a tacky ripoff, as though people don't know that, oh, well, the Heinlein actually wrote his novel before Invasion of the Body Snatchers was even written as a story. So Right. They both have Donald Sutherland in them, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's that similarity. <laughs> Another movie I was thinking of was Invaders from Mars, which was remade by Toby Hooper in 1986, but that was a 50s Red Scare right. mm. takeover movie. And that has this thing where there is a site that people are sort of visiting, right. and when they're walking away from it, they're clearly yeah. otherworldly and strange and not themselves anymore. Mm. So that was a feature of Invaders from Mars. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did find there was a the whole metaphor of like, Secret agents or spies, like, Mm -hmm. being the parasite alien taking over people. And it did feel very familiar to X-Files. Yes. You've got a pretty much a Mulder Scully tag team Mm -hmm. investigating aliens. Yeah. And that would have come out the year before this movie was made. Yeah, Yeah, 93. So was it a big hit immediately, X-Files? I can't remember. I remember joining it a few seasons in. I think it gained momentum over the course of its first year. I remember a similar trajectory to Buffy, where people were enthusiastic, but it didn't become the X-Files, I think, until the end of the first season or into the second season. So it would have been gaining popularity right around the time this film came out. Right. Yeah. It does feel very familiar, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A guy and a serious woman in a pantsuit mm-hmm. turning up at a small town to investigate something strange. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, feels yeah. very familiar. It does. Although, you know, the test 
whether you're an alien or not. Oh boy. Just show your boobs. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're interested in boobs, you're fine. <laughs> not interested alien. Yeah. You're an alien. So yeah. God help any gay man in this town. Right. Because <laughs> if you're not interested in Mary's boobs, you're immediately shot. It's <laughs> I know. the body count in this movie. Like they Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Like they're just gunning down civilians. Instead of trying to find out a way to get rid of the parasite stingray, mm-hmm. they just shoot everyone. USA. USA. Shoot first. (laughs) Ask questions later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're mowing down people with their car, including a child Mm -hmm. in Main Street of this town, and they just drive away. Nobody tries to stop them. Nope. Crazy. Yeah. It's a bit formless, I think, the story, because you start off with the small town investigation. I was on board for that. Then there's this middle section where there's a lot of jellyfish jumping from one person to another. And then there's some sort of conspiracy to take over the president. And then they Mm -hmm. kind of forget that. And then they're going back to sort out the original town, the source. Mm. I don't know. It just feels very sort of shapeless and meandering to me. I found that too, more so this time around when I'm, you know, critically watching the film as opposed to back in the 90s when I was just enjoying it as a bit of a sci-fi romp. But the stuff with the president is apparently directly adapted from the novel. So there is an entire subplot where the aliens are actively looking to take over the highest office in the land. Mm. And, you know, they come from Titan, which is a moon off of Jupiter. Jupiter, I think. So they basically come to Earth looking to take it over and they realize, oh, we should go after the president because he has all the power. So we could just get him to say, oh, okay, everybody go to these various stations, get outfitted with a parasite and we're good to go. (laughs) But it feels weird in the film because there's clearly a presidential figure Like, there's a man calling the shots that they're trying to infect in this portion of the film, and yet they never refer to him as Mr. President. So it feels like a deliberate attempt to say, like, we don't want to quite go there, but we also want people to visually think it. Mm. Yeah, I found the formless aspect of the movie because there wasn't really a villain, Mm -hmm. so to speak. There was, you know, the hive mind of the aliens, but you didn't really get a sense of a character. And every time it took over a person, it seemed to be a different character each time. Like the dad (laughs) at the end was quite sarcastic and funny almost, whereas the other characters were very serious when they were being taken over. And also when people were taken over, they seemed to be discovered really quickly (laughs) as well. That was never explored. Like I wanted the whole like, who's an alien, who's not an alien to be more of a plot point or, or without it being immediately found out and then chased and ensues. Let's get the thing off the person. Oh, they're fine now. And it seems too short-lived. Yeah, it does. I mean, there is one person who isn't fine afterwards, and that's the character Jarvis, played by Richard Belzer, who misses his parasite so much that he goes into withdrawal, is hospitalised, mm-hmm. and then does that thing where you push air into your IV yeah. to kill yourself. Yeah, that was never really... Never explored. And and also not addressed no. as well. He dies and no one talks about it. Yeah. It's like, oh, I guess he's just one of those expendable bodyguards that just, you know, 
Oh, it's fine. We've got heaps more. <laughs> and yeah, that aspect of the addiction to the the stingrays, I don't know, <laughs> that wasn't really explored, kind of, in that shower. I didn't really understand the shower scene, by the way. Yeah. No. Well, the shower scene lingered long in my memory. How about you, Joe? <laughs> I mean, I did say that this became a rental staple in my household. I didn't say for what reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for a burgeoning queer boy, that is obviously a very important scene. When you rewatch it and you see it in context for what this character has gone through, you think, oh, mm. this is not a sexy scene. There's nothing particularly enticing about this, this poor man. But you're right. It feels like this is a holdover from a previous draft where we wanted to explore what addiction to these things feels like because you know multiple characters say throughout the film oh it feels so amazing you've got this new perspective on life i don't hurt anymore Mm. and it feels like they want to kind of go there but they really only explore it with jarvis and then this one scene with our main character when he's in the shower yeah the one thing I don't like about that scene is an odd scene. So for people who listening who haven't watched it, <laughs> the main character, Sam Nivens, I think he's the main character, played by Eric Tal. Mm-hmm. After he's had the parasite removed from him, Mary discovers him in the shower having some sort of anxiety attack. And he's naked and she runs over to him puts a towel on his back but not his bum which is interesting <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't know what her priorities were there but <laughs> go mary yes. and then hugs him but then they kiss and i think mm, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be there yeah it's the start of their romance and you just think how inappropriate yeah, yeah. i think it is I, I think she should just be comforting a very vulnerable man i think at that point not snogging him yeah i did find the romance a little forced although when it did start unfolding it did feel warm like i did feel there was a connection but when it first started it felt like oh we're doing this again this is the 90s thing where they just Mm. insert romance into middle of action (laughs) sci-fi movie (laughs) everything how else will we sell it to women yeah (laughs) i mean she was kind of underutilized as a character as well she doesn't do a lot she's got her boob test i guess um but yeah not a lot else like she's a biologist right yeah an exobiologist which sam mocks at one point and she mocks herself she says yes we're the only scientists without a subject (laughs) (laughs) maybe the smartest line in the movie yeah i mean she does come up with the method of taking down the aliens Mm -hmm. at the end and she also rescues sam a couple of times i think she kills keith david's character holland yeah. when he's overpowering sam and all hope is lost so she does get to do some heroic things yeah no she does but the character of sam i had a hard time liking him at the beginning so when he's introduced to mary with his father donald sutherland he says that they're going into this small town undercover as a family although who would believe that i do <laughs> I know. not know <laughs> yeah. and sam says so where's my sister been all my life which made me involuntarily wretch <laughs> and then later on when mary is explaining her boob test theory yes she points out that sam checked her out when they were introduced he immediately denies it and then when she says a woman is used to a certain response from men especially teenage boys when we meet them uh-huh. and i'm not getting it from any of the people in this town they should have been looking down my blouse or something and sam immediately replies they wouldn't have had to try very hard. 
So he is immediately suggesting that Mary is dressing in a particular way that's asking for it.、Mm. And I thought, Sam's an asshole.、Mm. <laughs> yeah, he is. He really is. I wonder if the movie thinks that it's kind of deconstructing his. Masculine ideology, like it's he starts off as this sort of chauvinist pig, and then after he's been taken over, and then he gets free of the parasite, he becomes a kind of softer, gentler man who is more appropriate as a romantic partner for her. I'm not suggesting I buy that fully, but it does seem like the movie softens him so that the romance feels more appropriate, as you suggested, Dan. Yeah, yeah, I I think that might be right because he he does become emotional in the shower scene as well, very vulnerable,、um, as opposed to how he's depicted it in the start of the movie. And then at the end, there's that conversation where she knows everything about him、mm-hmm. now because she's been in the hive mind. She knows all his thoughts. That's another thing that I wish was explored a little bit more,、mm. like how every person that gets taken over, their knowledge and experiences is now just. Important to the hive mind database, and every single stingray person now has that <laughs> knowledge and experience. Like that would have been really cool to have、mm-hmm. as a skill that the alien utilizes a little bit more. I mean, at the end, the dad does fly a helicopter, so there's that, I guess. But you know, it could have been the Matrix thing where they're like,、mm-hmm. oh, downloading karate. Like, oh, now I know karate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, your point about exploring the hive mind. Yeah, again, they don't really. No, they don't. To、no. any degree, I wish they did, and I'm not quite clear on what their powers are because they seem to turn everybody into a killing machine, right? That's able to jump great heights without breaking or spraining anything. Yeah,、and、I'm not quite sure how they do that. Will Patton, who plays Doctor Graves, who's a great character again, love Will Patton.、Mm-hmm. He says that they run human beings hot and juice up their adrenaline. Adrenaline when they're、right. taking them over, so that they're more active and their response times are quicker. But I don't think that makes your bones denser. I just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't understand how this works. Yeah, yeah. And when the dad gets taken over at the end, like he loses his limp,、mm. right? So I mean, it fixes everything. Just all ailments. It seems like it.、Yeah. I'm not sure of the science on that, and I'm not sure of the science on how they kill them all at the end either. Because there's this suggestion that if you infect one of them with encephalitis, which because they are 60% brain matter rather than humans are like. Ten, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that means that the encephalitis, which causes inflammation, will make their brains leak out of their ears, which is amazing. Yeah. But the suggestion is that if you infect one, because they communicate via radio waves with telepathy, that they will all infect each other.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, isn't that the same as five G causing COVID? That sounds like <laughs> complete nonsense to me. This、yeah. is the original paranoid thriller conspiracy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that's how encephalitis contagion works.、Mm, I don't、no. think you can mentally beam it to each other over the internet. No, no. I don't no. believe the science holds up.、Mm.
the reason that the film may feel like it has a bunch of kind of different stories that aren't always connected, it could be a series of those rewrites as we were talking about, but it could also be because the original source material was written almost like uh, a serialized piece. And then it was formed together to make a book in the last result. So it was quite a bit longer and then they condensed it down into something a little bit more synthesized. But I wonder if that ended up resulting in a series of kind of standalone adventures that Heinlein was writing and then they said oh those are famous set pieces from the book so take the thing with the president take the thing with the hive take the thing with the original town at the beginning make sure those are in the finished film and then somehow you have to bridge them and yeah. get this semi-disconnected feel but it's interesting because the other famous Heinlein story that was adapted is of course Starship Troopers which is a more successful film because of what Paul Verhoeven does to it yeah, but sure. it also has the same kind of occasionally like fits and starts like we're going to this planet and then we have something and then we go back to like the spaceship and we do something so I wonder if it's a problem with adapting Heinlein in particular mm. yeah yeah I mean I think it's quite a lot to condense as well like this film felt almost rushed right. to me like I felt like I would have loved to see this film in like a miniseries like six episodes mm. where they really flesh everything out properly because it did feel like oh yeah we're going from one thing to another thing to another thing but not exploring any of these other things that we kind of introduce but we're just on to the next kind of set piece. I think you're right it is very episodic in nature and I think that's where the sort of X-Files aspect of it really (laughs) comes home. Yeah yeah. yeah, It's sort of three episodes it's like one of those ones where that ended up on Laserdisc like the Tombs episodes (laughs) where they just glued them together. Yeah this is the Parasite collection right? Yeah exactly. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) yeah I think it was also formless because I didn't really know what the motivations for the aliens were, apart from infect as many people as possible, but there weren't any steps to that. I mean, they tried with the president, but there was nothing else. Like, And I didn't really understand the, the hive lair headquarters. How did they make that? Did the stingrays build that? Are they excreting some sort of beehive substance like where did that come from did they transport it there because there was some mention of the population moving up river or something right I, I wasn't sure you almost wish that you could have seen that kind of membrane thing that they touch that evaporates to allow them in you almost wish you could have seen that on a barge or something that was making its way along the river yeah just so that you had a better understanding of what exactly is it that they're doing yeah mm. yeah and they didn't do the thing with normal alien invasion movies where like you know they blow up the spaceship like in the independence day mm-hmm. or something like that they didn't blow up that hive layer at all that wasn't really the solution no it was you know infect everyone with mosquitoes it goes for multiple endings so yeah, it goes for the sort of cerebral war of the worlds where infect them with the disease and that will bring them down sort of ending mm-hmm. and then it goes for the surprise donald sutherland can fly a helicopter now ending yeah it has a lot of endings tell me do you feel like the donald Sutherland piece is a bit of a studio note like it's not exciting enough to learn that we crush the aliens using mosquitoes and <laughs> some kind of contagion like no we need something more exciting can we get a helicopter explosion in there somewhere yeah, yeah. it felt tapped on the end like we need the big finish we need the action mm-hmm. finish in a helicopter because it's the 90s which doesn't crash which was like no. miraculous like they <laughs> shoot up the dashboard and the, everything it's it's completely shot it's on automatic he, it's fine 
Yeah, well, <laughs> he lands it very well in the middle of a street. I was surprised. I thought there was going to be the big crash. Yeah, it does feel like there is a tension between a studio wanting to make a very marketable action film and perhaps the creators wanting to do Heinlein more intellectual justice as a one of the first writers to be working on serious science fiction. So it wasn't Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke with 2001 in the 60s. It was Heinlein and George Powell on Destination Moon a decade earlier. Yeah. And in terms of the writers, I mean, the team is Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who are most famous for working on Disney Renaissance movies like Aladdin and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Mm. They did the first pass, and then you've got David S. Goya, who did a second pass, and he's famous for the Blade trilogy, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, so a lot of superhero franchises. And then it went back to the original pair to do a third pass, and then Stuart Orme, the British director, said that he just directed that, he didn't make any changes. Right. But to me, it feels like it is something that's bounced backwards and forwards between these two things. And sometimes it just wants to get rid of the cerebral stuff and cut to the next chase. Yeah. yeah. When, when you kind of look at it, it does feel like a whole bunch of rewrites. Mm-hmm. And, and the director, he this is his only theatrical feature? Yeah. He's, is, that, is that right? No, he seems to be mostly a British TV director doing episodes of yeah. Foil's War and Lewis and things like this. So, mm. I mean, the film looks good. I think it does. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't find a budget for it, but I actually think the film overall looks okay. Like, it's not the most exciting in terms of direction, but the visual look of it, it's very 90s, but it looks like a big budget action film. Yeah. It does. And, like, practical effects mm. as well. I will say, the effects are great. Really good effects. Like, the alien thing, on paper, sounds stupid and ridiculous. <laughs> Visually, actually works. I'm like, wow, that works. Yeah, so that's Greg Cannon's team, led by Larry Odeon in this case, and they were experimenting with silicon for the very first time, rather than latex, uh-huh. which gave it a much more flexible, slimy, fleshy <laughs> sort of approach. And those things look really articulated. I was impressed. Oh, so good. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I really like is the kind of malleability that they get out of the creature design. Like, um, So my husband is not a horror movie fan. Sometimes he'll watch sci-fi with me, so he was watching a little bit. But the moment where Sam infects the other guy with the eggs and then they try to go after the president and this other man that he's infected opens his shirt and we see the multiple creatures that are just like hanging off of his body so that we can peel them off and get the sticker (laughs) onto one of the other people it's like I think that that is such a creative way of moving them around because when you see the eggs you just immediately think oh okay well this is alien like the creature design is really uninspired when they're in the egg but then when you see them attached to people's bodies it's actually quite unnerving and I think it's really effective yeah it really is like just a design of a stingray shape Mm -hmm. with a kind of weird tendril communicating tentacle bits and then the tail which pierces into the spine of uh, humans it's uh, yeah it sounds crazy but it really does work and the fact that it has a kind of a grappling hook tail that like makes (laughs) it able to swing around rooms and stuff it's it's really creative yeah the whole indiana jones off the ceiling fans segment is really quite something but they do pull it off i mean it works yeah it's all practical all in camera 
there's very little by way of process work in this movie, as far as I could tell. Mainly just getting the real actors hanging off of helicopters in the finale is pretty much all it was. Yeah, right. Whereas the rest of the helicopter work is real, and again, something that they would never do now. <laughs> yeah. Helicopter careening around in a city with two stunt people fighting <laughs> in the back of it. Mm. Very well done. All of the practical aspects of it. Yeah. I did find some of the action sequences, though, became a little repetitive. Mm. It would always be like, okay, we're running through a building and punching everyone <laughs> and pushing everyone downstairs. <laughs> My favorite is the kind of like Jean-Claude Van Damme influence on this movie where we're not just punching people, we are actively, regularly kicking them. Oh, yeah, wow. right. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what stunning piece of trivia did you discover when you hooked up to a jellyfish today? Right, yes. Uh, so, did you know the, the actor uh, Richard Belzer, he plays um, Jarvis, who who he, he has passed away this year, 2023, which is um, sad. But he, he plays uh, the chain-smoking bodyguard Jarvis in this movie. Um, but did you know he is also in another sci-fi movie featuring aliens masquerading as humans, uh, Species 2? I will say that Species feels like an apt comparison to this film as well, right? That film would have been in 1995 or 96, but same idea with this kind of like ragtag bunch of scientists slash military Mm. operatives. And also, especially that scene with with Mary and and Sam about to get it on and the the spiky Mm -hmm. tail. It's like, oh, it's very Species. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that's our trivia. Yes. Did this movie do badly when it came out? Because I think the title alone, it's misleading. Mm. No, it wasn't a massive success. I think it garnered about $8 million at the box office. I couldn't find a budget for it. It could not find a budget. No. It, yeah. it had to be more than that, though. I would imagine so. It looks it. It looks like a $30 million type of movie. The sort of thing they don't do now. Mm. It was released in October of 1994. It charted first in fourth place behind Pulp Fiction and The Specialist. And Annette Benning and Warren Beatty in a movie called Love Affair? Mm. No (laughs) clue. And it plummeted shortly afterwards and was out of the top 10 the week after. Right, yeah. This feels like a film that would have been destined to find its audience on VHS, right? Like, But I think the problem is, you're right, Dan, the title, it's not just misleading, it's a little bit vague like if you didn't see the box art and somebody just said oh i'm watching the puppet masters people would think oh okay so it's a movie about marionettes or something like that yeah right? yeah yeah or murderous puppets from the 1989 exactly franchise with 11 <laughs> <laughs> movies yeah yeah it's very misleading like i don't immediately think oh sci-fi stingray aliens that take over the world the puppet masters <laughs> of course <laughs> and it's not as clear as something like invasion of the body snatchers which mm-hmm. has become much more iconic right although this film does have a few moments in it that i really like that are quite eerie i mean that scene at the end where they're going back to the town and there is one woman who is wandering the streets looking for her child Ooh. and she's suddenly surrounded by all of her neighbors yeah and she's screaming for somebody to help her and then so this kid brings this egg forward that's really creepy yeah genuinely creepy yeah i i feel like 
like it's one of those movies where they go too big almost. Mm-hmm. Like I almost would have preferred it if they just stayed in the small town right? the entire movie mm. and just explored all the different set pieces, but just have it set in the small town. Yeah. And maybe take the president out. Like we don't need that. And that would have been more interesting, more intimate, more sort of like condensed down. But when they go, you know, full scale, whole country, state of emergency, president, then it gets a bit like, oh, I don't know what we're focusing on. That's Mm. definitely an adaptation problem because Heinlein's story is this kind of like world scope kind of a project. sure, sure. But also, Conrad, you mentioned that he started his career in the military And all of his books have this kind of highly militarized aspect to them. So the same with Starship Troopers, which is like basically about a paramilitary unit. Mm. So I think he himself can't get away from telling those kinds of grand stories about like armies and battles and that sort of thing. But you're right, the scope of this film would have been way more successful if it was intimate and just focusing on like Mm. maybe a local deputy or like like a medical professional who works in this town and they have to figure it out before it gets beyond the borders. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's almost like they could have spent more time when it was small, mm-hmm. when the aliens were just infecting a couple of people. Right. But they kind of just skipped that, and mm-hmm. suddenly it's like thousands and thousands of people. <laughs> 2.5 billion people in, what, a week? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and there's none of the sort of mystery, is he, isn't he, Yeah, as there is... In the other film, Keith David's in The Thing, mm-hmm. which focuses on a much smaller group of people. Yeah, and much more confined. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And The Test as well. Yeah. I want more of the boob test. <laughs> Where was that? <laughs> well, it develops, doesn't it, from the boob test to the take your shirt off test. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Which seems to be Sam all the time. <laughs> yeah, it does. Oh, it does. It does. I thought it was interesting that all the main characters do get taken over at one yes. point. So they all get a chance to be evil mm-hmm. at one mm. point, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, and that's part of why I think the film is more successful in its early run is you don't anticipate that the lead actor is going to get turned so quickly. Yeah. Like you always think it's going to be the Keith David character or maybe Mary, but they get their chance later on. But the fact that it's Sam so early to me is still a bit of a narrative surprise because Mm. I think it upends the conventions that we expect from this kind of story. Yeah, Yeah, and it gives you a great scene between Sam and his father. And I think Mm -hmm. that works reasonably well, the development of his relationship with his father, because it's clearly very cold, very professional. Sam opens up to Mary about uh, how distant they were after the death of uh, his mother. Mm. Later on, there's this grudging respect because (laughs) he shoots his father when he's infected with a parasite. The best way for men to resolve their feelings is to shoot one another. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So another male aspect of this film that I wanted to raise, particularly with you, Joe, was it just me who felt that Scenes of men walking into rooms and surrounding other men and then slowly taking their shirt off kind of felt like gay panic rather than an alien invasion. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there is that one scene where the general has clearly been compromised and he refuses to take his shirt off, but he starts to turn his back and take his shirt off 
almost like a bit of a strip tease, and then the camera just goes dark. And like, <laughs> yeah. We've lost them. <laughs> yeah, and that's Marshall Bell, who, of course, is yes. in the gayest Nightmare on Elm Street movie mm-hmm. <laughs> as the gym teacher. Yes, which I, I will confess I appreciate it because, you know, Dan, you, you brought up the boob test numerous times, and I think in some ways this film is incredibly heteronormative in mm. the way that it has men being men and women being doctors until they need to do boob tests or be rescued from the hive. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I guess I do appreciate that the film has like a bit of a weird sexual vibe to it at all times. Like in another film, the parasites would have opened up their sexual interests and they might have all just been down to get funky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they do get interested in using Mary's sexuality as a weapon in Sam's apartment later on. So I will say that that scene is really interesting to me in two different ways. One, I think you could be very literal and say that Sam should be afraid of female anatomy because, of course, it is his cat who ends up infecting Mary when they're in a sexually (laughs) intimate position. So be afraid of the puss. (laughs) But then the sequence that follows where, you know, she lashes out at him and says, you know, like, you can't hurt this body. Ha ha, I'm fully in control she's half naked and then she jumps out the window and is picked up by a strange man in a car well it's the man that sam has infected earlier Mm. this scene is identical to the one that kevin williamson and robert rodriguez would do in the faculty four years later 1998 so the delilah jordana brewster character when she breaks out of zeke's garage it's almost identical. Yeah. Mm. Another movie with sort of people getting taken over. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Williamson knows his horror, so I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he was at least partially familiar with this film. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, we always talk about the music. Mm-hmm. The music score for this movie is by Colin Towns, a British composer. We have met him before on Rawhead Rex. Oh, oh yeah, right. Hmm. So uh, this is feels like a slightly bigger budget than Rawhead Rex, quite a lush orchestral score. Yeah. I mean, it felt very 90s action movie yes. score, like very action movie. It's not sci-fi. It worked. It was huge sounding. I mean, some of those chase scenes were just like, wow, mm-hmm. scores, he's having a lot of fun with the score. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Dan. It does feel like the score is doing a lot of heavy lifting, particularly in the action sequences. Yes. I guess I just wish that we had something as complimentary for some of the scary sequences. Like that scene where the woman is out and she's surrounded by the people. I wish that the score was a little bit more memorable so it could really accentuate that. Mm. That's yeah, a good point. That's true. I, I mean, I, I appreciated the more romantic, touching mm. um, mm-hmm. scenes as well the score like there there is like a theme that goes through the movie but i mean yeah i I think it works i i had no problem with the score yeah the bits that i quite liked was when it turned into a sort of manchurian candidate thriller in the middle there was a lot of hammering piano work from those 70s thrillers that were scored by david shire lots of hammering left-hand piano i loved it yeah running up and down stairs (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i think they had the piano during the the helicopter scene as well right so that was yeah unexpected i i thought they were just going to do the brass thing again but, um, <laughs> yeah piano <laughs> the only thing i didn't like is synth choir ah oh, i don't know it wasn't too bad <laughs> it wasn't too bad it's the 90s 
It's a bit cheesy. <laughs> it's like James Horner had a synth choir on Titanic. They could have afforded 60 singers on Titanic. Well, yeah. <laughs> it would not have been the most expensive thing in that movie. Yeah. Anyway. Just a, like a very quick backtrack. I was surprised they didn't do any sort of protection for their back. Right. <laughs> when, when they found out, you know, this is how alien attaches, why weren't they putting big metal, I don't know, something on their back to protect them? Like, they send this army into an infected area, just in army clothes, no protection whatsoever. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Or conversely, when you come back out of the field, everybody immediately has to strip down to a tank top so that we can see your upper back yeah. at all times. Yes. Yeah. Well, in the original novel, Heinlein's solution was that society went completely naked. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm telling you, they were down to get funky. They really were. <laughs> yeah, his vision of 2007 was a lot fruitier than <laughs> the version we eventually ended up living. <laughs> wow. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Hey, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite stingray-piercing parts of the film in a number of hive-mind-connecting categories. Best quote. So I don't find a lot of the film particularly funny, but I do enjoy Donald Sutherland's excuse for why Mary can't go into the flying saucer as being she bulked at the Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the writers end up going on to write. Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they were obsessed with it. Maybe. <laughs> My favourite is another line from Donald Sutherland, and it's clearly a bit of uh, looping, additional dialogue recording, that came later from some worried focus group that didn't understand what was going on. And it's where they are trying to escape the town. And one of the kids that you've seen earlier goes through the windscreen mm. and starts attacking them. And you hear Donald Sutherland off screen shout, it's the kid from the spaceship. <laughs> oh. like, a, we know, Donald. B, you would not shout that when a teenager is trying to kill you through a windscreen. <laughs> Best hair or costume. So this does overlap a little bit with our next award, the most 90s, but I have a separate reading for that as well. So I'm just going to go with Julie Warner's perm. Yeah. But it's that 90s, like real tight curls, like Meg mm -hmm. Ryan kind of perm. Yeah. Like she just needs it to be blonde to be just Meg Ryan. Like right. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I picked Mary's oversized black pantsuit Ooh. and heels. Perfect for investigating uh, something and uh, complete with plunging neckline on her white blouse so that she can do the boob test. Yeah. Right. Most 90s moment. So I think for me, this is probably indebted to the X-Files, but yes, the intrepid, diminutive female agent in heels. Ah, uh, yes, mm. yes. Uh, I mean, 90s for me, I mean, technology is easy, it's an easy pick. There's like pages, there's, um, I think it's a it's a mobile phone, right, that he has with mm -hmm. the antenna? It's not a cordless right. phone, it's <laughs> an actual mobile phone, which is huge. But there is also one, one scene where they hold up a floppy disk with all mm -hmm. the information, all <laughs> the secrets of, of all the agents on this <laughs> tiny floppy disk, which is probably only like, what, three megs? 
worth of yeah. like I was going to say, and then there's 20 floppy disks behind it, which contain the rest of the information. Like the Oregon Trail took like 12 disks just to do, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for me, most 90s, I put, it's suspicious that someone isn't chain smoking. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, I mean, obviously in, in reference to Jarvis, Richard Bells' character, um, who is chain-smoking throughout, and then when he stops, they know that he's been taken over by a parasite. Mm. But I think they kind of do two different things with this, because it's, it's the mid-90s, so it's like smoking is sort of becoming something that people are commenting on being bad yeah, yeah. now. Mm-hmm. So the only person who chain-smokes in the X-Files is evil, and I think that's what they were doing here. So it's sort of both. Mm. Right. Favourite scene! So mine takes place early in the film, you know, I think, Dan, you said it gets a little bit repetitive over the course of the movie, but I find it really exciting how we exit the television manager's office after first seeing the creature and just all of these people start attacking them. And it really yeah. helps you to develop this sense that, oh, you're not safe. Like, regular people are out to get you. And I mm. love the kind of casualness with which they're trying not to arouse suspicion, but, like, we're punching women in the face and <laughs> yes. camera operators are leaving their posts to attack us. Like, yeah. I find it's a very thrilling early action set piece in this film. Yeah, yeah, mm. I really like that as well. And and sort of the, the casualness. Like, they're not running mm-hmm. through the building. They're just no. walking briskly (laughs) (laughs) for me it was more of a a dialogue scene it was the interrogation of Sam when he's uh, possessed Mm. between him and his father because I think Eric Tal comes into his own in that one. I think he's really sinister. I think the dynamic between him and his father, lots of home truths coming out in that mm. scene as well. And Sutherland is great in that scene mm-hmm. as well, because although he's trying to maintain his his calm demeanor, you can tell he's upset at electric shocking his own son and torturing mm. him. So, yeah, I thought, oh, this is, this is really great. Yeah. So how about you, Dan? Uh, my favourite scene, I, I really liked the the first reveal of the Stingray parasite in the the, yes. the manager's office that you mentioned, Joe. Like, it was just so unexpected. And also the, mm-hmm. the level of animatronics and practical effects I did not expect in a 90s movie. I thought that was going to be early CGI, which would have looked oh. terrible. But it, mm. it looked really good. And the, the fact that it had this kind of grappling cocktail and it was swinging around the room and using the fan as a as sort of a launching device to projectile itself <laughs> against <laughs> Mary and then she smashes it against the window. It's kind of stuck to the window. It's kind of writhing around. It's, wow, it's really, really good reveal. And that's mm. 13 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most cliche moment. So originally I was going to go with hanging off of a helicopter, but I feel like we've already exhausted that. So I will go with a fairly standard backup, which is I must kill my best friend. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Always a great moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For cliche, I went for Sam stoking a log fire for the sexy scene and the camera even swings around the couple so that it's behind them as they snog in silhouette in the foreground Mm. with the flames 
leaping behind. Oh, I thought, my goodness, <laughs> is this softcore porn or what? <laughs> yeah. The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Best special effect. I feel like we're probably all going to be in sync with this one, yeah. but it has to be the alien. But I will say, yeah. particularly the attention to detail during the autopsy sequence, where we get to see the kind of intricate detail that they put into this model. It's so superb. Yeah. It looks mm. real. Like, I don't know how they made that. It looks properly biological and, and a living thing. Yeah. It's really impressive work. And it's the sort of thing that you wouldn't get very often now, I don't think. No. No. It's a shame. It'd be digital all the way and rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Yeah. yeah. I did all the details, like when, with the microscope and everything, like, it really does look real and, and alive. Mm one thing you mentioned the little red tendrils that they shoot up for this antennae yeah i quite like right at the end where donald sutherland says hi sam and the little red tendrils come up as if they're just gonna wave <laughs> yeah. at a little him. hand wave <laughs> yeah they look like little fingers hello, you know, hello. <laughs> <laughs> remember me <laughs> favorite sound effect so we haven't talked about it because we focus mostly on the score, but the the kind of rattlesnake sound yeah. that the creature makes as it's about to move, again, I thought was really, really inspired. Yeah, mm. yeah, a really high-pitched, kind of hissy, rattly sound. Um, and it mm -hmm. always it sort of um, it was like a precursor to a tail launch as well. So you mm -hmm. knew it was about to do mm. something but you didn't know what it was going to do. So, yeah, it, was, it worked really well. Yeah, that was exactly the same thing that I wrote down. It, it rises in pitch and speed, and it really gives you a great sense that something powerful is about to happen. Yeah. I loved it. Most funniest moment. So, as much as I appreciate uh, the body on Eric Thal, at times his choice of acting left me a bit perplexed. So he is an open mouth actor, so in scenes where he's meant to be very intense, you'll frequently notice throughout the film, he has a kind of like dopey open mouth look and it's very perplexing. It's quite unique and also kind of captivating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did think to myself halfway through this movie because I started to sort of note them down, all the mouth-breathing scenes, and I thought, this could be a great drinking game. Oh, yes. Watch mm -hmm. Puppet Master and take a shot every time Eric Thal's wandering around with his mouth wide open. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, funny scene for me. I The scene where they've got all the agents, right? I mean, it's it's... It's not even just agents. It's like admin staff. It's just all the officials in that room. And, and Donald says, okay, now everyone has to strip. That sort of awkward moment where everyone just looks at each other. It's like so hilarious. Because I, I can imagine like, let's say in your work, Conrad, like you get infected by aliens and everyone at Cambridge, and all the staff have to, have to strip. Like that scene, oh, awkward. Yeah. It's definitely an HR issue. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, the follow-up for this would be like 50 complaints to HR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My favourite has to be the chimpanzee scene, just because I do love a chimpanzee. They're immediately hilarious to me. But specifically, the capper on it for me was when the... <laughs> <laughs> the chimpanzee is infected with a parasite and it calmly walks over to a keyboard and types out on the screen, do you miss me, Sam? <laughs> yeah. And 
when you cut back to the chimp, it's sort of peering coquettishly over the edge of yeah, the keyboard yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with its big brown eyes like a lost lover. I loved I just, it. I, I, I find that scene really creepy. It. it was creepy. <laughs> was, it was creepy, yeah. I was killing myself laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's our Moobly yes. Awards. I'm Mary Jo Peel, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. All oh, right, it's uh, Final Verdict time. Should the Puppet Masters from 1994 be released from obscurity to attach itself to the back of every human on the planet and be applauded? Or should it be minced by a helicopter propeller and be kicked back into the Oubliette and never spoken of again? The Puppet Masters. Joe. What's your final take on this movie? Should people watch it? So I gather that you two did not enjoy this as much as my childhood self, but (laughs) I have a lot of nostalgic love for this movie. And well, I appreciate that. I think the story doesn't quite hold up and there's lots of plot holes and other things like that. I think when the movie is working, it's really, really working. The special effects and a couple of those really key scenes to me, It's enough to merit a recommendation for folks if you've never seen it and you are at all curious. It is worth seeking out. Yeah, I I was in two minds when I first started watching it. Um, Like, it does feel very familiar. It feels like a lost episode or extended episode of of The X-Files. But I did really appreciate the effects. I did not think the effects were going to be this good. I thought they were going to be terrible, B-grade, cheap um cgi maybe but oh i don't know i i i kind of enjoyed this movie like it has its flaws characters aren't perfect but i i did enjoy it i did enjoy it and i probably would recommend it to people especially people that like x-files or anything in that sort of field of of sci-fi and and aliens and you know agents and people that could be aliens (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Because it doesn't quite explore the alien invasion and the paranoia as much as you'd like it to, although there are little moments in it that are really creepy. It doesn't really explore the alien's hive mind or what their motivation Mm. is at all. It's rushing to get to the next action scene, and then most of the action scenes are sort of conventional 90s action scenes. Mm But the effects are great. The performances are great. There are some really great moments in it. Mm. You know, I don't hate it. You don't finish and think this is a bad movie. You right. just think it's sort of a, it is a straight to video rental, but it's one of those ones that you keep finding yourself wanting to watch occasionally, mm. maybe. Like maybe twice a year or so. Yeah. <laughs> and not just for the shower scene. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I kind of liked it. If somebody loves the genre and wants to see another Body Snatchers movie that's well done and uh, with a good budget and a great cast and great effects, then yes, I'd recommend it for sure. Yeah. I'd agree. Well, I'd better check in with our patrons to figure out what their vote was. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Time for the final verdict, please. In their infinite wisdom, 
Our patrons voted to set the film free. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Okay. So everyone agrees. Mm, yeah, it was 60-40 split, though. So, again, people feeling sort of ambivalent about it. Eddie Coulter said, set it free. It's impressive how much it stays true to Highland's novel. It has a very X-Files vibe, which makes sense as the movie came out during the time that X-Files became a phenomenon. And Retroblasting said... Like Dan, I immediately thought of the Puppet Master series, but unlike him, I've seen all of those. I do recall seeing this movie in the video store, but once I realised it wasn't a Charles Band production, I never rented it, so I can't vote. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> On a similar note, Filippo said, Yes, PSA, Puppet Master 1989 is not this movie. I unfortunately <laughs> watched the wrong one, which was basically the cheesy horror sequel to The Big Chill Nobody Asked For with right. none of the Motown. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, poor Filippo. Yeah. so bad. It's confusing. It is confusing. It's a very popular <laughs> title for films, it seems. Yeah, a bit generic, as we said. <laughs> we also heard from Chazilla, who said, I've never heard of this one before. If you put Alien, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the X-Files into a blender and push the made-for-TV button, this is what you would get. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would say it's a step above made-for-TV, especially effects-wise. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a very, very astute uh, observation. I thought so, too, yes. And I enjoyed reading Chazilla's full analysis of it. It was great <laughs> fun. And finally, Isaac Sutton says, Laugh out loud, I can't believe the aliens mm. were revealed yeah. because they failed the boob test. <laughs> this, <laughs> this movie is entertaining and more nuanced than I think people give it credit for. But wow, you can feel the greasy layer of misogyny mm. every yep. chance yeah, it gets. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, people feeling a little bit ambivalent, but on the whole, letting it go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's set it free. Yeah, just slap it on a jellyfish and hurl it on out of here. <laughs> I can fly Bye, movie. Bye. Well, Joe, it's been really fun having you back on the podcast again. Where can people follow you and follow all of your reviews and other exploits? Uh, yes, the easiest way to do it would probably be on social media. I can be found at B Still My Remote, and that's the letter B, and you'll be able to get access to all of my many, many podcasts as well as sporadic writing. Mm. Mm. Is there anything in particular they should be looking out for in the near future? Uh, I mean, I do have those new Amityville reviews coming out bi-weekly. So follow along on that journey because I do think that the alien in my brain is leaking out of my head every time <laughs> I have to write one. <laughs> yes, I think you need company on that series mm. <laughs> for moral support. And listeners, if you want to keep up to date with all our future episodes or message us and tell us how wrong we are on our opinions <laughs> on all the movies that we cover, you can find us on all social media platforms. And uh, you can also email us at movie.oubliette.com at gmail.com yes and if you want to support the show head on over to patreon where for as little as a dollar you get access to extended portions of the show and you can vote on and nominate films for us to feature in future episodes for five dollars you get to vote on the final verdict and maybe affect the outcome of whether it goes into the oubliette or not and get access to our monthly minisodes where we talk about 
all sorts of strange topics. Uh, this month we were talking about lesser-known films from famous directors, I think. Yeah, that was a very interesting discussion. Lots of tangents. Lots of tangents and lots of people chipping in in the comments section too. It was really interesting to read those, so thank you. Mm. And for $10, you can be an executive producer like Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton and Dr. Doggy. Yes, thanks for the support. Mm. It's very important. Uh, we have merchandise on Redbubble with our logo on it, if you want to, on all the things in your house. Uh, and uh, we also have a YouTube channel uh, where we get into video essays about various things. And we also have a couple of live panels on there as well. Yes, we do. All right, Conrad, what are we going to be doing in next episode? Well, we put it to the patrons this time, and they've been voting on a big stack of Blu-rays from my movie oubliette shelf. Oh, yeah. And in fourth place, we had the Kurt Russell sci-fi actioner, Soldier. In third place, we had Cherry 2000, mm -hmm. an 80s sci-fi movie. In second place, we had Tammy and the T-Rex, which <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious about. And that was very close to what ended up winning, which was Space Camp. Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right. Blasting into orbit? <laughs> Apparently so, yes. So Space Camp, the 1986 science fiction adventure film uh, starring Kate Capshaw, Leah Thompson, Kelly Preston, Larry B. Scott, Leaf Phoenix, otherwise known as Joaquin Phoenix, oh, Tate Donovan okay. and Tom Skerritt and directed by Harry Weiner. Okay. There we go. Cool. <laughs> I've never seen this film, so I have nothing. I have no expectations. No, it was. A, it's a rather sad tale. They made this big film to celebrate the shuttle launch because shuttles were becoming more accessible to everyone because a teacher was going up this time. Right. And then, of course, it all ended in tragedy. So then the film came out, and really nobody wanted to see a space Ooh, shuttle movie anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Bad timing, okay. unfortunate timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, be interested to check this out. Yeah, me too. John Williams score, so ah. classy soundtrack. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, listeners, again for joining us on another journey. Uh, this time with Stingray Aliens. <laughs> uh, until next episode, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Hey, it's the kid from the spaceship. <laughs>